This is an article published in The Economist on April 1st, 1999. Uh, I wasn't able to find the author for this, but it's a nice article, so I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, it's called The Biology of Art. Science is generally the farthest thing from people's minds when they take in the beauty of a Van Gogh or a Monet. And by the same token, artists rarely consult scientists before painting a canvas. But it was not always so. During the Italian Renaissance, when many of the conventions of Western art were first established, what is now called science frequently informed the way people painted. And some artists went farther, not only using the new knowledge of geometry and anatomy to improve their art, but also speculating about how and why art was perceived in particular ways. Leonardo da Vinci, that archetypal Renaissance man, conceived of what he called the ten functions of the eye. These were darkness, light, body, color, shape, location, distance, closeness, motion, and rest. He also came up with the idea that although the images of objects travel physically from the front of the eye to the imprensiva, now called the retina, they are actually formed in the sensus communis, the imagination, or the brain. Those were bold guesses, but as neuropsychologists have investigated the way in which vision works, they have found that Leonardo was right on both counts. On top of that, over the past few years, they have discovered ways in which the tricks employed by artists exploit these divisions of labor to create illusions of reality. That provides some answers to the question, how? Neither is the question why being ignored. Evolutionary biologists are now asking themselves just what art is for. And some are concluding that it is not merely an accidental manifestation of human intelligence, but a specific evolved capacity with a clearly defined purpose. Art for science sake. When a beam of light is focused by the cornea and the lens at the front of the eye onto the retina at the back, it stimulates photosensitive cells known as rods and cones. Rods are sensitive to all wavelengths. Cones, which are responsible for color vision, come in three varieties, each tuned to a particular wavelength. A stimulated rod or cone emits an electrical impulse, which in turn stimulates an impulse in a nerve cell. This travels into the brain along an optic nerve, there is one for each eye, to arrive at one of two small clusters of nerve cells called the lateral geniculate bodies. These are split into two layers, the magnocellular and the parvocellular systems. The role of the magnocells is to signal contrasts and brightness, while the parvocells react to both brightness and color. After that, the divided signal is channeled for analysis to the visual cortex, a large convoluted region at the back of the brain. It is here in the visual cortex that artists play their games. For it is here that the signal is really chopped into Leonardo-like categories before it finally emerges by processes as yet poorly understood, as what the possessor of the brain in question perceives as visual reality. The visual cortex is divided into some two dozen areas, but the most thoroughly investigated are those that handle the incoming signal first. These are named, rather prosaically, V1, V2, V3, V4, and V5. Each has a specific function or functions. The first, V1, 
has three subdivisions of cells, each of which possess a particular part of the signal from the magno or parvo cells, and then sends the results to the second area, V2. One of the leading exponents of research on these areas is David Hubel of Harvard University. A few years ago, his colleague Margaret Livingstone realized that the results might be brought to bear on the question of artistic technique. To determine which visual signals are the most important to each subdivision of V1, Dr. Hubel's group, among others, has measured the electrical responses of its nerve cells to a range of stimuli. The differences between individual cells are striking. Some are activated by color or brightness, but not at all by shape or movement. Others are sensitive to orientation, but not to color or movement. The researchers then turned to V2, the next region to receive the signal, and exposed it to the same stimuli. By following the path of the signal electrically and viewing slices of V2 tissue under the microscope, they discovered that V2 also has three subdivisions, each of which receives its input from one of V1 subdivisions. The role of the other three regions, V3, V4, and V5, is the province of another group that is interested in the science of art. This group works at University College London under the tutelage of Samir Ziki and his colleague Matthew Lamb. Initially, Dr. Ziki employed a scanning technique called positron emission tomography to investigate these regions. PET uses radioactive oxygen to measure blood flow and therefore activity in different parts of the brain. PET scanning showed Dr. Ziki that regions V3 and V5 are particularly sensitive to movement, an observation corroborated by the fact that people who sustain damage to V5, from a stroke for example, suffer from so-called motion blindness. As with other areas of the visual cortex, the sensitivity of V3 and V5 cells is specialized. V3 cells respond to diagonally oriented lines, especially when they are in motion. V5 cells react to motion in general, with each cell responding particularly strongly to motion in one preferred direction. Both V3 and V5, however, are indifferent to color. That function of the eye is the province of V4. So if a stroke or tumor damages a person's V4 region, he will become completely colorblind. The brain's interpretation of color is actually a three-step process. First, the wavelength composition of the light from all points in the visual field is analyzed and registered by V1 and V2. Second, this information is sent to V4, where the light reflected from a surface is compared with that reflected from surrounding surfaces in order to control for relative rather than absolute brightness. Third, the results of this analysis are relayed back to V1 and V2 for reinterpretation after which the signal is sent to the parts of the brain where the impression of an image seems to emerge. Put all these observations together, and visual processing seems to follow three separate but intertwined pathways through a particular region of V1 and V2, and then on to V3, V4, V5. The first path runs from the magnocells via V1 and V2 to V5. The second runs from both magno and parvo cells via V1 and V2 to V4. And the third runs exclusively from the parvo cells via V1 and V2 to V3. According to Dr. Zeke and Dr. Lamb, this analysis goes a long way towards explaining how different art movements achieve their particular effects. The cortex of the beholder. 
The kinetic art movement that began around 1914, when artists felt the urge to incorporate the illusion and ultimately the reality of motion into their work, was the first artistic school to be analyzed by Dr. Zeke and Dr. Lamb. Artists' first attempts at experimenting with motion were crude, as in Duchamp's Nude Descending the Staircase. This collage of colored human forms only feebly suggests motion, since the emphasized colors and forms stimulate V4, while the motion-sensitive V3 and V5 regions are ignored. True artistic exploitation of motion neurobiology did not appear until the 1930s with Calder's mobiles. These, of course, moved, but by abandoning color entirely and making his mobiles black, Calder unknowingly minimized the activation of the color pathway while optimally stimulating V3 and V5. In Harvard, a different artistic school attracted the researchers' attentions. Dr. Livingstone looked at the late 19th century impressionists, such as Sir Rott, who were playing their tricks on other parts of the visual cortex. According to Dr. Livingstone, although the individual brushstrokes or dots of Impressionist paintings are large enough to be seen by the predominantly form-sensitive third pathway, they are too fine to be detected by the color-sensitive second pathway. So when such a painting is observed from a distance, the colors blend. Up close, however, the dots are large enough to stimulate those few form-sensitive nerve cells that are part of the second pathway, and are thus perceived as separate. The result is that the colors no longer blend. This effect may be noted in the living room as well as the art gallery. It is what allows you to watch television without seeing the individual pixels that make up the picture. Op art represents yet another artistic flirtation with neuropsychology. For example, Mondrian's painting Broadway Boogie Woogie is widely perceived as unstable, as if it is jumping all over the canvas. According to Dr. Livingstone, the color combinations here, yellow lines against an off-white background, are still strong stimuli for pathway 3, the shape detector, and weak activators of pathway 1, which looks for edges but cannot reliably find any between these two colors, and so cannot fix the position of what it is looking at. Dr. Zeke's most recent foray is into Fauvism, an art movement whose aim was to shock the viewer with vibrant colors. He decided to explore the color pathway beyond V4 to work out which brain areas are used when objects are seen in their natural colors and when they are seen in the wrong colors. A vivid example of this is Andre Durain's Charing Cross Bridge, which requires the viewer to recognize that although the river does not look like water, it is yellow, not a natural color even for the Thames. It nonetheless is just that. For these experiments, Dr. Zeke used a second brain scanning technique, Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, fMRI. This jiggles hydrogen atoms into giving off radio waves that can be turned into a picture of a brain, or indeed any other part of a body. Since most of the molecules of which the brain is made contain hydrogen, but do so in varying quantities, fine-grained maps of the organ can be built up by looking at the hydrogen density and changes in the blood flow tract rapidly. It is therefore possible to see which areas are active during specific tasks. Dr. Zeke and his colleagues asked people to view scenes of fruits, vegetables, animals, and landscapes in both their natural colors and in abnormal colors. The fMRI results showed that naturally colored objects stimulate four areas of the brain that lie beyond V4. 
These regions are known to have sophisticated roles, such as memory storage in the brain's integration of the various functions of the eye into a meaningful visual experience. However, none of them was activated when the people inside the fMRI machine were shown pictures of objects in the wrong color. There is also comfort for those who wonder about the aesthetic value of much of modern art. In a separate fMRI experiment, Dr. Zeke discovered that multicolored abstract paintings like Mondrian's stimulate the brain up to area V4, but not beyond it. Representational art, by contrast, goes all the way. By reducing the features of the visual world to simpler elements, modern artists have also minimized the number of visual pathways used to view their work. That simplification surely cannot mean that it is more easily appreciated by simple minds, can it?